on this Sunday prior to Thanksgiving as we look to our Lord in prayer. So, Father, what we want now is to be able to draw insight and rich perspective from this psalm. The psalms are set musically, written poetically, are meant to be able to be applied personally. We want to be able to see all the nuances that are found here, draw them out, and relate in very practical ways to how I live my Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, and so forth. How we handle the difficult situations of life, the highs as well as the lows, with the steadiness that comes from knowing you. In any of these services today, Father, as we gather together, if there are those that are coming that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, they might know you in some abstract way, some generic way, but they have not established that sense of personal relationship with you through the finished work of Christ. We're asking that you would speak to that heart, move in their soul, draw them to you. Now these minutes count. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, and him only. I pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's rich insights that were penned about William Bradford. For you see, it was April 5th, 1621, the writer informs us, when Governor John Carver and about 100 pilgrims at Plymouth, watched the Mayflower hoist anchors and sail from Cape Cod Bay back to England. Put yourself there. What are you feeling now? You're being disconnected from where you were. Do you feel like an exile? Do you feel alone? What fears and doubts must have raced through their minds as they watched their last slender link to civilization pass out of sight? But then top it off with this one. One week later, on a hot summer day, Governor Carver dropped his hole, complaining of an awful headache, and two days later he had passed away. By unanimous vote, the handful of remaining colonists elected 32-year-old William Bradford to take his place. The fate of the colony, indeed of their very lives, hung in the balance. But with an unaltering faith in Jesus Christ and an unwavering courage, William Bradford accepted the challenge to become governor of the colony, trusting the outcome, you see, to the Lord. And it was William Bradford, who I oftentimes in this season, then quote, Inasmuch as the Great Father has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn and wheat and beans, squashes and garden vegetables, and has made the forest abound with game and the sea with fish and clams, spared us from pestilence and disease, granted us freedom to worship God. Now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all ye pilgrims, 
with your wives and little ones do gather at ye meeting house on ye hill between the hours of nine and twelve in the daytime on Thursday, November ye twenty ninth of the year of our Lord, one thousand six hundred twenty three, and the third year since ye pilgrims landed on ye pilgrim rock, there to listen to ye pastor, and render thanksgiving to ye almighty God for all his blessings. William Bradford, Governor of Plymouth Colony. 16.23. And whenever I ponder those words, which I read each year this time, I find myself thinking about the various ways in which you and I are to be giving thanks to God. Because if you stop and look very carefully at this classic passage on thanksgiving, This classic passage deals with the fact that thanksgiving by nature must be unnatural to us. That would require God to make such commands. So what I want to do with you is to be able to draw out some what I will call thanksgiving considerations this morning for whoever's around your table or whoever you're with come Monday morning, whoever you're with come Thursday, And ask yourself, now, how can I take this and, practically speaking, translate this into a way in which I can be relationally connected with others and have a profound impact upon their lives, inching them along their full-spectrum discipleship experience? Three what I'll call Thanksgiving considerations flow out of these verses. The first out of verses 1 and 2, that as we prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving, consider our call for giving thanks to the Lord. It's found in 1 and 2. And I want you to notice with me that he begins, this psalmist does, with a summons, a challenge, a call. And he begins with this idea, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, this word here, make a joyful noise, is a fascinating thing. It literally says, shout. Shout to the Lord. The Hebrew word carries with it the idea to give a blast as with a trumpet. And so now the people are gathering together and they're making their way toward Jerusalem. They've been exiled, which is the descriptive of what the third book of the Psalms details. And now here you find, as you've entered into this fourth book, that there are going to be times where God is challenging you and challenging me to do things that require us not to stay quiet. To open our lips because we've opened our hearts and begin to express something with regard to what we view that God has done in us, through us, for us. What's interesting about this make a joyful noise is that Likewise, you will find in this fourth book of the Psalms, there's something similar. For instance, in Psalm 95, verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise, in this case, to the rock of our salvation. So now you're responding to the fact that God has sovereignly and securely established your salvation based upon who he is and what he's done not based upon who we are and what we've done. And this is powerful. Now you tie that together 
in the fourth book of the Psalms with Psalm 98, verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. So now this word, to make a joyful noise, carries with it uh, the sense of giving a blast, a blast like a trumpet, which was typically done in homage to the king. Which is interesting because in the fourth book of the Psalms, this is highly impactful in the way in which we are to understand that the sovereign king has summoned his people out of exile and now they have opportunity to come home where they belong. And maybe you wrestle day in, day out with that sense of and just where do I belong? like that orphan video a few moments ago, to whom I belong. Well, they're excited now, and so here we find, make a joyful noise, but notice this, it's to the Lord. This tells us then something with regard in the whole matter of thanksgiving about the fact that God is personal, because notice in your English Standard Version, or in my Hebrew, this carries with the idea of Yahweh. English, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This isn't some generic God out there that people occasionally have a fleeting thought regarding. No, this is someone who is personally involved in your everyday experience. And so now you are making this blast to the sovereign king of the universe through the way in which you live your life, make a joyful noise, you see, to the Lord. This is the covenantal God. And as you do so, you're going to notice right away that this also has to do with the fact that this is universal. It's for all the earth. Now that captures my attention because it doesn't read, make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. You see, the generic name for God is Elohim in the Bible. It's used to describe him in the opening chapter, the creator God, Genesis 1. But this is the intimate personal name for God, Yahweh. And here we've got then both Jew and Gentile being called upon, summoned to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Now, the average Jew might have thought that this would read, make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the Jews. But you see, the Bible states that it's to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And so now, this is the universal call of evangelism, of missions, of discipleship, that Jew and Gentile alike are to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this is an evangelistic statement. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. In other words, God is making a claim that the world belongs to him. Now, once you're stirred at this point, and you're overawed by this point, that he's thinking about you, you've inched then towards that second verse. Because when you and I are giving thanks, we've got to do some practical stuff with the way in which we give thanks to God. And so he tells you, and he tells me at this point, that we, are, that we are to serve the Lord. And so you might say, well, I'm serving on Wednesday night in Awana, or I'm serving with the youth group, 
I have this sense of serving, but he wants you and wants me to ask, but what is my attitude when it comes to matters of service? Here you and I are called now to serve the Lord, and again, it's Yahweh. We serve the Lord with gladness. And the Hebrew word for gladness here carries with the idea of talking about someone who has done something that has produced a sense of joy within your heart, within my heart. But because he's telling us we've got to serve, once again we're saying, well, even service doesn't come natural. I'm having to be summoned. I'm having to be called. I'm having to be challenged. I'm having to be commanded here. But God gives us the grace of taking this sense of maybe entering into Sunday morning with a major attitude on our hands, but leaving with a sense of gratitude in our hearts, you see. Because you're chronicling now, you're, you're pondering 2018, the highs and the lows and the ins and the outs, and now you're having to connect these various calls. Okay, I'm to make this joyful noise, and it's, and it's to be something that's comprehensive, something global, yet I've got to also make sure that it's highly personal. And then I'm going to have to, out of the willingness of my heart, instilled by the Holy Spirit, serve the Lord serve the Lord, how? And I answer that now with gladness because as the object of God's grace, the Lord's to be the object of our gratitude, the call, the call to serve. Remember that story about Shackleton, his advertisement in a London newspaper? Men wanted, men wanted for hazardous journey, Small wages, bitter cold, long months, complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. It was signed by Ernest Shackleton, the Antarctic explorer. What astounds us is that thousands responded instantly, instantly to the call. Now, maybe you find yourself in a heartfelt matter where your mood is anything but thankful. You've been weighed down by what life has brought your way. But you can't confuse God with life, this physical life. There's more. There's the sovereign God. He's the God over all of this. And so now, we are serving. We are not self-serving. The thankful person is not a self-serving person. The thankful person is a God-serving person. But the God that we are seeing here is the God whose name is being spelled out personally, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then you're going to have to ask that practical question, how am I going to go about doing this? And he comes at you with this phrase, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord, you see, with gladness. Again, the Hebrew word carries with the idea of talking about someone, about something that that someone has done with a sense of joy in your heart for what he has done. In that case, in that case, it's grace. But then he inches you a little further, doesn't he? Because Christianity is not a status quo experience where you stand pat in life, no matter what kind of losses you've experienced in life. 
come. Don't stand still. Don't dig in your heels saying, life's been just too hard. Come. And come into his presence with singing. Now, this is an astounding thing at this point because the Jewish population would be thinking about the fact that there's that veil and that veil separates sovereign Yahweh God from humanity. It's there to create a sense of separateness. But you and I standing on the other side historically of the cross of Jesus Christ know that that veil has been rent in two, top to bottom, and now we have the opportunity to access the presence of God. Now, practically speaking, it could very well be at your Thanksgiving table, you're going to be looking off and on, glancing at a particular chair that's now empty that once was filled. You know it's coming. And maybe, maybe there's a heaviness of heart when you think about that. What I want you to do, speaking pastorally now, is to so practice the presence of God in your thanksgiving experience. Allow the presence of God to fill that chair. And as you look in the way of that chair, I want you to be thinking about the presence of God at that point as you're thinking about who he is and what he has done. And now what you and I are doing at this point in practicing the presence of God, you come into his presence. This is action-based. This is a proactive approach because when the emotions of life weigh you down, the natural tendency is enough is enough. I don't have the inner stamina to come into his presence. How about he just come in my way once in a while? But you see, there's something proactive about the call. He's summoning you. He's summoning me. This is corporate. This is collective. It means that there's a sense of movement. You're not stationary in your experience with Christian truth. No. You're progressing. You make, you serve, you come. Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And as you have examined now verses 1 2, you've already identified three commands within this general call for giving thanks to the Lord. Now, once you've done that, then you're ready for what I'll call this second Thanksgiving consideration. That no matter what your experience in 2018 thus far, and you still got a month to go, you know, it comes your way. Secondly, I want you to note with me that as we prepare our hearts for thanksgiving, consider our reason for giving thanks to the Lord. Now again, preparing the heart. You're not merely preparing a meal. You're not merely preparing the house. And all those things are good to get ready. But make absolutely certain you are dealing likewise with the inner as well as the outer. Because you want a sense of true balance, equilibrium in your Christian experience between the inward and the outward aspects of your life. This is part of your preparation going into Thursday. That's why we're pausing on our 2 Corinthians series today to do prep time. 
Know now that the Lord, he is God. Now this word know captures your attention. Because first of all, it informs you and informs me that God is knowable. And furthermore, God has made himself knowable. And thirdly, God has established a relationship with you through the finished work of Jesus Christ on this, Lord, on the cross, that you in turn can know him, as J.I. Packer would put it, knowing God. So now, this is not an abstract God. This is not a distant God. But now you're feeling the sense of that absent person at that Thanksgiving table with the intimacies of the presence of God, and you're able to do so because you have objective as well as subjective, objective knowledge and subjective experience with him, you know something here. It's personal. There's this inner acceptance that's combined with an outward acknowledgement. You know that the Lord, he is God. Now, I remember years ago taking people through this congregation, through the book of Genesis. It took me about two years to get through that book. I had uh, someone in the military, he was on leave one year, came back the next year. He said he just had to flip a few pages over to find out where I was now on my expositions of that following year, Thanksgiving time. Genesis is rich. You know, the opening chapter, on into chapter 2 in the opening verses, it speaks of the sovereign one as God, G-O-D, Elohim. But then something happens in the creation of humanity when, lo and behold, we are told he is the Lord God, the personal God. What fascinates me is that when you get into Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And then he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Did you notice that he dropped Lord in the first question posed to humanity? Lord God is a significant experience for you and for me when we're giving thanks to God. Or, take for example, in 1 Kings in chapter 18. I was thinking about that when our tour was passing Mount Carmel a few weeks back, and I was looking up at Mount Carmel where Elijah took on the false prophets of Baal. And as he took on the false prophets of Baal, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the people together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Now there's our culture. Maybe that's where you've been. A divided heart. If the Lord is God, Elijah posed, follow him. But if Baal, and then he didn't say, but if Baal is God, he just said, but if Baal, then follow him. Long story short, false prophets, false gods can't produce. On the other hand, Elijah's Lord God produces. And when the Lord God responds to Elijah's 
He does so as Elijah prayed in 1 Kings chapter 18, 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know, may know, you see, that you, O Lord, are God. And this backslidden culture of Israel at that time is taken aback when God sovereignly breaks in, answers Elijah's prayer, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now in this pluralistic culture we find ourselves in, and want to keep God generic, what the psalmist is now doing is challenging you and me to be absolutists with regard to what God has revealed about himself, this exclusive, sovereign, singular God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Know that the Lord, he is God. And then he adds, it is he who made us. We are his. You belong to the Creator. So you are watching that often video. And they're grappling with, I belong. I belong. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's one more reason to give thanks to God. You belong. But then he uses this incredibly rich pictorial metaphor. We are his people. And the sheep of his pasture. And because you're like me and you want to keep the various books of the Psalms together and see the natural progression of them all, you're always asking yourself within a given book, such as now in book four, the Psalms, how does the psalmist then use a similar terminology and connect them together? When Psalm 95, verse 7, we're told, For he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. And so now he uses the picture of the shepherd and the sheep to help us to understand better what we're all about. And maybe you remember about that Montana shepherder decades and decades and decades ago who made this incredible request of a Chicago radio station. And he lived this lonely life with a dog and 4,000 sheep. Can't imagine that one. Battery radio, old violin. He loved to listen to the Chicago Symphony and wanted to be able to play along in various parts that he knew but his violin was out of tune, and so he asked, sometime before you start the next program, would you have the orchestra play A for me? Well, here's what caught the nation's attention. That just before the next Chicago Symphony broadcast, thousands of listeners heard these words. We want to answer the call of a shepherd. The orchestra will now play A for the shepherd in Montana. And I thought about this some. You answer the call of the shepherd. 
And now you see how the call for giving thanks to the Lord in 1 and 2 is tied together for the reason for giving thanks to the Lord in verse 3. You're able to understand and embrace the reason for it. Why? Because it is he who made us. We're his. We're not in it for ourselves. We are his people. Sheep of his pasture. Now you're pulling these thoughts together and you're getting overwhelmed, if you're like me, with the sense of it all, of what this entails, because now you're inching forward to the third of the three thanksgiving, the third three, three thanksgiving considerations, and it comes out of four and five. The thirdly, as we prepare our hearts, not merely our, our menus, not merely our houses, our hearts for thanksgiving. Now consider our guidance for giving thanks to the Lord. And so you're up to verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Gates are significant. Gates have a way of making a statement. Gates separate. They separate those from within and those from without. In 1963, John F. Kennedy visited the Brandenburg Gate. To welcome him, the Soviets on the other side hung large red banners across it to prevent him from looking into East Berlin. Jump forward to 1987. Ronald Reagan is there at the gate. Mr. Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization... Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then I noted that on October 2nd and 3rd of 1990, the gate was the scene of the official ceremony to mark the reunification of Germany. And at the stroke of midnight, October 3rd, the black, red, and gold flag of West Germany, now the flag of reunified Germany, was raised... Where? Over the gate. And when I thought about contemporary history, then my mind went back to more ancient history because I was thinking then about there was Nehemiah at the gates, you see, of Jerusalem, and he was doing some kind of, of evaluation of where things stood. And having taken the congregation in recent years through Nehemiah on Sunday mornings, we had reached a point where he had said, I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate. Furthermore, he would go on to say, in inspecting the wall, I turned back and entered by the valley gate. You get to chapter 3, and what you will find here is that in the way in which they were evaluating the, the situation that was at hand, he set up an organized work crew to begin to repair the gates. Why? So they could have a sense of protection, security for Jerusalem. And that crossed my mind as I was standing by the gates of Jerusalem. And maybe this can appear on the screen at this point, this, this map, if you will, of, of what has taken place, if you put that up there for me. And there, as the map appears, what you're going to see is this picture, this scene, this descriptive of, of Jerusalem. And if you look very carefully, this is coming from one of my professors, Dr. Barry Beitzel, who was a colleague of Dr. Walt Kaiser, uh, you will find that there are various gates 
all around Jerusalem. Uh, there's the sheep gate. Here's the east gate. Look at all these various gates. They're making a statement of access. Openness, a fountain gate down here. There's dung gate stood by that. I was out by Jaffa gate making our way in. So you're pondering all these things, and you are pondering the fact that God has provided a sense of access. But God is saying when Nehemiah was securing those gates is that those gates were being secured for a purpose, so that Jerusalem would be protected for that time, that ultimate time, when Jesus Christ would enter through the gate and make his way in. But what interests us all the more is that he doesn't leave you at the gate, does he? Enter his gates, how? With thanksgiving. But now you're moving from the gates inward into the courts. And into his courts with praise. He wants you to move, continuously move forward in your relationship with God. So just as they had physical movement on their hands, as they were making their way further and further inward, so likewise you and I are making our way further and further with God. No matter what experiences you have encountered in 2018, you enter his gates, there's the geographical statement with thanksgiving, but now he wants you to continue on. Don't leave it at the gate. Did you find somewhere along the way you lost your sense of thankfulness? No, he wants you to take it with you into his courts with praise. And what interests me at this point is that when Jesus Christ in your newer testament expelled the money changers, he expelled the money changers from the Gentile courts because he knew that the gospel needed to be both for Jew and Gentile. He didn't want Gentiles to feel as though religion was just simply a, a take experience, but that God is gracious in opening himself up to both Jew and Gentile. But there's this movement, you see. There's this movement from the gates onward into the courts, and you're coupling now Thanksgiving with praise, and you are giving thanks to him, and you're blessing now his name. And you might remember that in the construction of the, of the Tower of Babel, the people were trying to make a name for themselves. But what thanksgiving does for you and for me is to help people to understand that God has delivered his name, it's Yahweh God, for people to understand that while they have kept God generic in their mind sight and gone about their daily routines, God has broken in with a Yahweh statement. He wants you to think about Lord God, Yahweh God here. And so what he does for you and does for me now as you make your way into verse 5 is that he bookends it for you. For the Lord is good. Now you say, but Gary... 2018 wasn't necessarily good. But what I want to say to you is don't confuse God with 2018. 
God is good, even if 2018 didn't feel so good. Don't confuse the issues when it comes to the exclusive sovereign God. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. So now you say, even if 2018 wasn't so good, in my guidance of understanding how to do thanksgiving, the Lord is good, and now the richness of the Hebrew breaks in at this point. Hesed. Hebrew word. The steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. And now what you have wisely done is draw a line from all the earth, the geographic statement of verse 1, to all generations of verse 5. You've bookended it again. And so now you've got breadth of geography. You've got length of generations. And you're thinking about how do I do Thanksgiving when sometimes still I find that I've got to counter my mood with the sense of what I need to do in relationship, not merely to generic God, but to Lord God. But then we let a nurse guide us in that one. Because Becky Pippett tells about Eileen. A young nurse writes about Eileen and her pilgrimage in the midst of thanksgiving. Eileen was one of her first patients, a person who was totally helpless. A cere cerebral aneurysm had left her with no conscious control of her body, the nurse wrote. As near as the doctors could tell, Eileen was totally unconscious, unable to feel pain, unaware of anything going on around her, and it was the job of the hospital staff to turn her every hour to prevent bed sores, to feed her twice a day what looked like a thin mush through a stomach tube, what looked like a thankless task, the writer puts it. But the young student nurse decided that, well, she couldn't treat this person like the others had treated her. She talked to Eileen. She sang to Eileen. She shared the gospel with Eileen. She encouraged Eileen, brought gifts to Eileen. But then we're told, one day when things were especially difficult, it would have been easy for the young nurse to take out her frustrations. She was especially kind. For you see, it was Thanksgiving Day. And the nurse said to the patient, oh, Eileen, I was in a cruddy mood this morning, i got to tell you, because it was supposed to be my day off. Now that I'm here, I'm glad, Eileen. I wouldn't have wanted to miss seeing you on Thanksgiving. Eileen, do you know that it's Thanksgiving? Well, just then her phone went off, and as the nurse turned to answer it, she looked, she looked quickly back at the patient. When suddenly, she writes, Eileen was looking at me, 
praying. Big damp circles stained her pillow. She was shaking all over. She said, thank you. And that was the last we'd heard. This was the only human emotion that Eileen had shown. But it was enough to change the whole attitude of the hospital staff. Not long afterward, Eileen passed away. And the young nurse closes her story by saying, quote, I keep thinking about her. It occurred to me that I owe her an awful lot. Except for Eileen, I might never have known what it's like to give myself to someone who can't and give them back. And there's our Thanksgiving story. That's how we prepare our hearts, with the call, the reason, and the guidance. Joyful Thanksgiving. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we see the richness of William Bradford, who in the young years of his leadership demonstrates such faithfulness and that he offers perspective for citizens of this nation to think seriously about what we have. As we gather together this Wednesday night, to offer congregationally, collectively thanks to Yahweh God. May we in the highs and the lows, even if there is a, a chair that might be empty, pray now that we'll fill that chair with the sense of your presence and offer thanksgiving as Bradford put it, to Almighty God for all his blessings. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.